Just raise your hand if you know who Rob Bell is. Okay? Now, the, our, our deaf friends this morning uh, got to hear about somebody that they would know a little better named Justin Vollmer. And so a lot of what I'm going to say about Rob Bell could be said in principle about Justin Vollmer. That helps them to understand a little better. So if you hear me mention Justin Vollmer, if I say, or Justin Vollmer, that's really for our deaf folks. <laughs> so, um, but Rob Bell, uh, is, he started off as an evangelical pastor. Started off as an evangelical pastor. Started, not finished. Okay? Keep that in mind. This is very important. Rob started off as an evangelical pastor. He was boldly teaching the gospel in new and creative ways. Uh, had a flair for preparation and, and for public speaking and all of these things. And, and so he was doing this in new and creative ways. Now, there's two megachurches known as Mars Hill that I'm aware of. Uh, one of those in California that's actually disbanding as a megachurch uh, here in the next week or two. That's not the one we're talking about. We're not talking about Mark Driscoll's church. We're talking about Rob Bell's church was in... It's either in Michigan or in uh, Minnesota, one or the other. But... Um, Anyway, uh, we're talking about Rob Bell's church, Mars Hill. For many years, it was booming with growth. It was one of the fastest growing churches in the country. They actually bought an old shopping mall, I believe, is, if, if I'm not mistaken. And they're, like the center court area was this huge center court area. And they remodeled that all to be their worship center. And understand I use the term worship center instead of sanctuary. It is theologically incorrect to call this a sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary according to the New Testament. This is a sanctuary. That praise song, Lord prepare me to be a sanctuary. That is theologically correct. This is the sanctuary. But they remodeled that center court area to be their worship center and all of these things. Booming with growth. Now, Rob started producing videos that were his own thing. They weren't the churches, but, you know... He's the pastor of the church, so you know, it kind of go hand in hand. Uh, they were called NUMA videos. And this is a, that NUMA, the way they spelled it was N-O-O-M-A, which was a transliteration of the Greek word for spirit. Okay, so it's a transliteration um, for the Greek word spirit. And so they started producing these NUMA videos, and, and the NUMA videos are crazy popular. I mean, just crazy popular. And right there in the beginning of the NUMA videos, that's where I started catching on to doctrinal error creeping in in large ways to Pastor Bell's teaching. The NUMA video dust, for instance. In that NUMA video, he talks about the reason Peter sank on the water was not because Peter lacked faith in Jesus but because Peter lacked faith in Peter. He said that when Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, he was talking about, Oh, you of little faith in yourself. Now, interestingly enough, if you look in the Greek, when Jesus says that, he says, Oh, you of little faith, it's the Greek word pistis, and every time it is used in the New Testament, it is talking about faith in Christ, including that time. So this, this idea that you know, it, he lost faith in himself, error starts to creep in. Now, here's the reality. 
Is that an error in teaching? Absolutely. Is that going to send somebody to hell to think that Peter lost faith in himself, so that's why he sank on the water? Probably not. But it's a warning sign, right? Rob, as, as well, about that time period, uh, and, and I mean, what, in, within a couple of years of each other, I think, wrote a book called Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith. One of the worst books that you could ever read. It is not on my recommended reading list. Do not read it. It is full of all kinds of error. You have to read the footnotes to really understand how full of error it is because in the book, Rob says, I affirm truth wherever I find it. What you don't understand unless you read the footnotes is that he is quoting multiple other religious texts such as the Quran and the Sanskrit, the Hindu Sanskrit, as truth. Is this sending somebody to hell? I don't know, but we're starting to get dicier. The whole premise of the book is that Christianity in America today is like that old... Who remembers the Velvet Elvis pictures or any of those old Velvet pictures? Come on, show your age. You've seen them, you know. And he's like, it's like this old Velvet Elvis picture that we've got up in the attic. It needs to be repainted. We're not talking, of, we're not talking about it needs to be repainted in the sense of we need to do modern worship music or we need to do things that connect with young people. No. He was talking about actually changing doctrine, having another reformation. We know this by where it ended up going. Okay? He wasn't talking just about changing the methodology. He was talking about seriously repainting the core tenets of Christianity. Rob continues to go on and he writes more books and he's producing more sermons and, and it's just kind of going crazy. Now, by the time Rob Bell had written the last book that I know of that he wrote, and he might have wrote another one after that, but I quit paying attention to him, uh, the book was called Love Wins, subtitled, A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. Before that book, guys like me who were in certain positions, I was the program director for the Southern District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance's camping program, and so I, I had to worry about what was being taught there. And so guys like me are crying, wait a minute, you can't use Bell's stuff anymore. It's borderline heresy, and, and even he's starting to lean towards apostasy, different, by the way, heresy and apostasy. Um, but the borderline her- heretical stuff that's coming out of there. By the time Love Wins comes out, comes out, everybody, well, not everybody, because there's still people who like him, but evangelical leaders, respected evangelical leaders all over our country are crying heresy and even apostasy. Rob was this, even the subject of a video podcast devoted exclusively to defending... The book, Love Wins. And even non-Christian media outlets, secular media outlets, sat down with Bell and interviewed him and said, you realize that you are teaching something completely different than the rest of Christianity teaches. In the video podcast that was dedicated to it, Rob actually said he did not care if people took away his e-card because of this what did he mean by e-card you know y'all you got a man card anybody got a man card 
You know, you got your man card, you know, that's, I'm a man. The E card is the evangelical card to take away and say that he wasn't evangelical because of this. Because the premise of the book, Love Wins, was that Lottie Dottie, that's what we used to say in the army, Lottie Dottie everybody, eventually gets into heaven. That is what he was trying to prove in that book. So the question, and it may be already answered a little bit, what is apostasy? What is apostasy? This is part one of a two-part sermon. And in reality, it's uh, part 48 of a I-don't-know-how-many-part sermon on the book of Hebrews. Right? And, and while I say that, let me just explain something. There, people, some people have questioned, like, when we do Bible studies and things like that, why do we try to get it done in a certain time period, but we're preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we're just going to take however long it takes? Every sermon I preach is done by the end of the 45 minutes. We're getting the whole point across. So that's why we try, that's why we try to do in our training grounds and our small groups too, is try to get the whole point across rather than drag it on for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine weeks. That's why we do that. Okay? Um, but I digress. That was probably a, I, I digress. Yeah, I digress. It was AKA, uh, what do you, what's rabbit? Oh, rabbit or, yeah, rabbit trail. (laughs) So, but anyways. um, So what is apostasy anyways? In order to begin answering this question, we're going to have to dig into the scriptures. And today we're going to be digging into Hebrews 10, 26 through 36. Yes, I tacked on some more verses to the end of our passage that we're looking at. We're going to need to dig into those. During this process, we will define apostasy with a dictionary definition. And we will also follow that by exploring the practical reasons that Bell was accused of apostasy. So if you want to, go ahead, and maybe even if you don't want to, open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, and follow along. While you're opening your Bible to Hebrews 10, 26, and following along, I want to tell you why I never put Scripture on the screen. Because I want you to learn how to use your Bible. I'm not saying that preachers who put it up there are bad, but I think it kind of gets a little dicey in our lives if we go to church without our Bible. And if I put it up on the screen, what if I change some of it and you're not following along in your Bible? You have no idea. I like to be checked. Make sure I'm staying on track. Amen? So let's read these scriptures together and then we'll pray and then we'll dig into apostasy. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Let that sink in. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Boy, that's a... That's a pivotal verse. That's a pivotal verse in this. 
But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you, yourselves, had a better possession and an abiding one. Well, you think he's talking to you? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you, believers, have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. By the way, we're going to come back to those you's a lot. Let's pray. Lord, We come to you today and we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, have your way. Help us to understand the dangers of apostasy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So, the New International Bible Dictionary, published by Zondervan, explains apostasy this way. Here it is. Ready? This is my Zondervan voice. The word is seldom found in English translations of the Bible, but is a description of Israel's rebellion against God. In Greek, where it has the implication of deserting a post, it refers generally to the abandonment of Christianity for unbelief. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 Timothy 2, 18 are places where apostasy would be appropriate translation. Perhaps on the part of those who had never truly believed, or perhaps not. The writer of the letter to Hebrews declares apostasy to be irrevocable. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and also Hebrews 10, verses 26. And Paul applies it eschatologically to the coming of a time of great rebellion against God, i.e., 2 Thessalonians 2.3. All right. So the Baker, defi- the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible gives a shorter definition. Say hallelujah. All right. It's turning against God as evidenced by abandonment and repudiation of former beliefs. Apostasy is turning against God as evidenced by repudiation, excuse me, abandonment and repudiation of former beliefs. An unbeliever can never become an apostate. Because in order to become one, you have to abandon that which you believed. It is impossible. To become an apostate if you did not first believe. The term generally refers to a deliberate renouncing of the faith by a once sincere believer rather than a state of ignorance or mistaken knowledge. 
The problem in many modern American churches, however, lies in the fact that there have been many teachers who have taught that it is completely impossible for a genuine believer to renounce their faith. But friends, is this teaching actually based in the Christian Scriptures? The Scriptures, even our passage for today, clearly teach that a believer can renounce their faith. I would argue that it's not based in Scripture at all that that a person can abandon their faith. The writer of Hebrews' argument that this can happen begins immediately in verses 26 and 27 where it states, For if you go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That these verses are about those who persist in deliberate, willful rebellion to God is unquestionable. But what people struggle with is how I or anyone else can come up with its being a Christian is the rub. Nobody will argue that this is about people who are in deliberate rebellion to God. Everybody sees that clearly. It's like, yep, clearly about people who are in rebellion to God. What they struggle with is, well, how could this be about Christians? Now, listen. I am basing this in the Scriptures. In the Greek language that Hebrews was written in. I am not basing it in somebody else's sermon. I'm not basing it in a commentary. I'm not basing it in notes or any of those things. I am basing it in the Scriptures themselves. Just the Scriptures. Nothing but the Scriptures. The Greek word that starts verse 26 is the word gar. This passage starts with the Greek word gar, which is translated for. Now, when you understand what this word means, it's a marker or a cause of reason between two events. That's what it means. Let me give you a for instance. I went to the store. For Sarah told me if I did not, she was going to beat me up. See, they're linked. It's a like for this reason or it's a connector. So what is it connecting? The thought before it and the thought after it. Let me show you what I mean. Starting in verse 19. We want to back up. Therefore, brothers... Who's he talking to? Believers. Say it with me. Therefore, brothers is who? Okay, believers. Keep that in mind. He never switches off believers. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, 
but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, do you agree? Just shout it out. Yes or no? Do you agree that that all is talking about believers? Okay. He's linking this to that section. For still the same people. If we go on deliberately sinning after receiving knowledge of the sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is connected to the passage. He is talking to the same group of people. Every time you see a sentence inside of the New Testament, starting with the word for, you can mark it down. It goes with the passage before it. It is still part of the same thought process every single time now i'm giving you permission for the rest of the time that i'm your pastor if i try to disconnect two sections from one another and say this is about a different group of people or a different audience than this part before and it starts with the word for you can say you said every time in the new testament that it started with the word for The sentence starts with the word for. It goes with the passage before it. Now, I'm not saying we'll always preach the whole big section, because that might be 30 verses. But it's all about the same thought process. And you have permission to call me out on that if I don't do that. Fair enough? Get an amen if it's fair? Okay. The argument, though, is not based upon the word gar alone in verse 26, stating that a person is in danger. Verse 26 states the person in danger is the one who has received the message of truth. Do you see that in verse 26? For we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The word translated after receiving is a form of the Greek word lambano. It's lambian. Do not pronounce anything that i pronounce to you out of the greek to somebody else with and act like you know what you're talking about don't go my pastor said they go your pastor's dumb <laughs> okay <laughs> so my pronunciation is more like pronunciation so it's it's in the neighborhood okay according to the theological dictionary of the new testament the abridged version in the new testament we find this sense in this word okay so everywhere we look at this word this is the sense in such context, it is taking up one's cross. It's accepting, that's in Mark 10.38. In John 3.11, it's accepting the witness. Or messengers of Jesus. Also in, uh, in John 13.20. Or it's accepting Jesus himself as in John 1.12. And collecting what is due in Hebrews 7.8. Since two is the predominant in theological passages. Thus Jesus takes our infirmities. Matthew eight seventeen. He receives our infirmities. That's that word. A variation of that word. He receives our infirmities. God receives praise in, in Revelation five twelve. And even Jesus has only what he receives from God. Choose that way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, 2 Peter 1, 17. Believers receive God's Spirit. John 7, 39. Acts 10, 47. And the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Peter 4.10. They do so by faith. Receive them by faith, like Galatians 3.2. And as a gift, Romans 1.5. Indeed, they receive even earthly things from God, as in 1 Timothy 4.4. And they are invited to ask in order that they may receive. In John 16.24. 
Beyond this life lies the imperishable crown of life that they also receive. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Receiving may be by way of the church as in 1 Corinthians 4.7 but it is from Christ himself that the gospel is finally received according to Galatians 1.12 Now if you want all the list of those references you come up to me after service and I'll give them to you. But I think we have clearly established that receiving is not merely hearing something and passing, but it is actually getting it. Can I get a witness? It is getting it. A person who has done this has received the truth. Jesus gives a prime example of this when he talks about the parable of the four soils. And he talks about there's four different kinds of people. There's the people that are like the hard path that do not receive it. And then there is the rocky ground who receive it with joy and gladness and it springs up quickly. Life comes and then dies. When trials and tribulations come, they turn away. And, and then the other one is the parable of the wheat, or the, excuse me, is the weedy soil. Where the cares of this world and the things they want to do, it's kind of like the hyper-grace soil. The stuff I want to do chokes it out. Again, it came to life. And it was growing. And now it is gone. And then there's the fourth soil that actually produces a crop. And that soil is for all of those who are genuine believers because some of them produce crops that are 10, some of them 60, some of them 100-fold. Different people produce different amounts of fruit. This is, this is evidence that there are three different types of people that actually receive the truth of God, understand it, accept it, and it becomes a belief that they hold. As we discussed last week, verses 29 and 31 makes an even stronger argument that this passage is a warning against believers consciously turning away from God. We see that there in the verses 29 through 31. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? This is a person who has been made holy by the blood of the covenant and has now spurned it. Sanctified means holy. Who has been purified and made holy by the blood and is now spurning it. That is not about unbelievers. That is about you and I. Possibly. Like if, we're the, if we start to spurn him. Okay? But the strongest argument in this illustration that the writer of Hebrews uses to explain this point is the illustration that he puts in or she puts in in verses 32 through 36. By the way, there's Lombano to get something or come in possession of. That's that Greek word. So in verses 32 or 36, the writer does something bold and risky. He uses each reader's own story as the primary illustration to help the reader understand what he's talking about. Now you can see that in that verse, in verse 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. 
Right there, he's saying, let's make this personal. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. In the span of five verses, the author uses some form of the word you 12 times. 12! The uses, the uses of you or your are various forms of Greek words that are too lengthy for me to define and explore in this sermon. But suffice it to say, the English translators were accurate when they used the various forms of you 12 times in this short section. So in the Greek, this is the part that I'm going to explain. If you go and look at an interlinear translation, you will see that where the you is, there's like these arrows underneath you pointing to the next word. They're translating that word into multiple words because in the Greek, it means you did this thing. But we don't have a word for that in the English. We have to put it in two words. You understand what I'm saying? We don't have an equivalent for it. For instance, there is a a type of board in Mongolia that they use in schools to write on. And it's not a chalkboard and it's not a dry erase board, but it's kind of like one of them, but we don't have anything in the United States like it at all. And so, we have a really hard time translating it into English. These are those words. We don't have any words that are equivalent to them. So the authors, they say, okay, this is like a you, like the reader is possessive of this thing, and so we translate, the translators translate that into that. Okay? This is called an ellipsis. It happens all the time in Scripture. Happens all the time in Scripture. There's no one-for-one translation. Now, if you think I've gone off the deep end about how we translate and interpret things like this, just ask Bonnie if there is an interpretation, if there is a word-for-word interpretation from English into ASL, American Sign Language. There's not. This right here, means need, should. I mean, what else does it mean, Bonnie? Have to. It means all kinds of stuff. And so when she's translating it back to us, if, so, if somebody speaking sign language does this, we need to know the context of what they're saying to know what that means. It's the same kind of thing. They don't have a sign for have to and a sign for should and a sign for need that are different. So, they, so we translate it that way. And we, get the, we come to the understanding from context. All right. So, going back in here. Repetitious words or thoughts in Scripture are a literary device the writer employs to draw our attention to an important concept. Guys, this is Inductive Bible Study 101. Everybody who's ever sat down and read the Bible and done any kind of inductive study, that is just using the Scriptures... If you are using anything other than the Scriptures, you are not doing an inductive Bible study. If you're using a study guide produced by Lifeway, it's, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it's not inductive. If you're using a commentary, it's not inductive. If you're using your pastor's sermon notes, it's not inductive. An inductive Bible study is using the Scriptures alone by observation, interpretation, and application. So when you're taught to observe the Scriptures, you're taught to the first thing to look for, repetitious words. 
There's a passage in John where John uses the word light over and over and over and over again. It is a key to that passage. Five verses. Now, some of you think my math is bad. You're like, 36 minus 32 is 4. It's inclusive. 32, 33, 34, 35, 36. Five verses, 12 times. That is huge. Repetition. Let's read it again now, paying attention to all these yous. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you, number three, had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your, your property, five, since you, that's six, knew that you, that's seven, yourselves, that's eight, had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is nine, which has great reward for you, which is ten, have need of endurance, so that when you, that's eleven, have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Whew! Twelve yous. Hmm. Who's it about? Somebody please tell me. You. And remember when you're pointing at me, you got three of them babies pointing back at you. <laughs> it's for us. This links back to verse 26 and tw- verses 26 and 27. It's telling us that it's about us. The illustration the author is using is your own life. He's saying that you received the truth. You were enlightened. And you went through all of this stuff. Now don't you throw it away. That's right, brother. <laughs> Amen. You know what? I may have to wait 20 years before I get interaction, but I'm going to get interaction. <laughs> so, I want to link this back to Rob Bell or Justin Vollmer. He was accused of rejecting the Christian faith because he said that everyone eventually made it into heaven. By this radical rejection of the clear teachings of Scripture that only born-again people make it into heaven, Bell placed himself in the category of an apostate. He has rejected the Christian faith. He has said that everybody will ultimately get in, so it does not matter if you are a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, that eventually you will get in, even if you die and go to hell, that through post-mortem evangelism, that's after-death evangelism, God's love will eventually woo you out of hell and into heaven, and therefore He is apostate. Because He taught at one time that was not the case. Justin Vollmer taught... From a pulpit as well. He was a pastor. A deaf pastor. And he was teaching the truth of the gospel. And now Justin Vollmer says, I am an atheist. He has rejected that which he believed previously. Does this mean that Justin and Rob were saved and lost their salvation? Or, or does he mean that it never had that they never had it? I don't care what you believe about that, nor does the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I don't care if you believe they rejected they had it and they lost it, or they never had it. I do not care what you believe. 
You can build the argument either way in Scripture. I don't think I've ever publicly said what I believe. I will say it today. What I've taught you, and this is what I have said publicly, trust that He can keep you, but live like He cannot. Here's what I believe. One day I believe that you can not lose it. And then the next day I believe you can. And then the next day I believe you can't. And the next day I believe you can. Because when I read the Scriptures, I see both arguments. And I waffle back and forth between these things. Because the Bible says both of them. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. Better be careful or you're going to go to hell. It's dynamic tension. It's supposed to be there. Trust that God can keep you, but live like He cannot. I don't know which one of these I believe. I hope it's okay with you that I don't know which one of these I believe. If it's not, it's too late. Guess we'll find out when the elders get calls calling for my resignation. Inside the alliance, pastors can be on either side of the fence or where I'm at, and it does not matter because we believe with all of our heart that it does not matter which one of these you believe, you can be wrong about it and still get into heaven. You can be wrong about whether or not you lose your salvation or, you, or you're once saved, always saved, and still get into heaven. That's not the crux of, it, of, of our salvation. The crux of our salvation is have we repented of our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ. By the way, that is not negotiable. That you have to repent. Let me spell it. R-E-P-E-N-T. Repent. That doesn't mean go, huh, well, I'm sorry, Lord. No. It means to be sorry for the type of person that you are, not for the specific things that you've done, so much that you don't want to be that person anymore and you turn 180 and start going the other way. It is an action. Now, listen, I'm not trying to tell you that salvation is by works because then I would be teaching an error Actually, heresy would go that far. You got error, heresy, and apostasy. Error, everybody has some error. I have error in my doctrine, guarantee you. So do you. So does every preacher and every Christian. None of us have it all right. That's just the truth. Heresy is in danger of sending people to hell. Apostasy is a rejection of the faith. So if I taught that you could earn your way to, to heaven, I would, that would be heresy. Because if somebody believes that, they're in danger of going to hell. Okay? I'm not saying that you, that you don't have, that, that works get us to heaven. Because they don't. But I'm saying that without repentance, you can't be saved. Because that's what Jesus said. So if you're going to get mad about it, get mad at him, not me. He's the one who said it. He said, unless you repent, you likewise shall perish. Jesus is saying, you cannot receive me as Lord and Savior and then keep on living like hell. That is proof that you have not actually received me. Or if you did receive me and changed and now you're back to living like hell, something is wrong. A sunflower the literal thing that has sunflower seeds on it that we like to eat. Every morning when you get up with a healthy sunflower, it is facing the east. 
And if it's planted in the Northern Hemisphere, I don't know if they grow in the Southern Hemisphere, but they do in the Northern Hemisphere. If it's planted in the Northern Hemisphere, it will start in the east and it will track the sun across the southern sky or if it's straight above, right above it. And it will end facing the west. And by the time the morning comes, it's back over here and it does the whole thing again. That's why it's called the sunflower. If you have a yellow flower with a, with a middle, with a big circle in the middle that is not following the sun across the sky, there's two things that are possible. There's three things that are possible. It is either artificial. I started to say two things and then I realized there's artificial sunflowers. It is bad, bad, sick, or it ain't a sunflower. Church, people who once accepted the faith and are now rejecting the faith, apostasy, is specifically what the author says places us in danger of hell. That is specifically what places us in danger of hell. This is the outright rejection of the Christian faith. It's not a person who stumbles and falls into sin. The important concept from this passage is not our need is not is is our need to not turn away from the faith. Instead, we must endure until the promise is received. This is not a person who messes up and in a moment of weakness sins. And I think that's what everybody's problem is. Well, you're telling me that I sinned so I lost my salvation? No. But I'm saying if you are rejecting God, if you are saying I can live any way that I want to and still go to heaven, you, my friend, are in danger of going to hell. And if you die in that state, I fear for your eternal soul. The blood of Christ needs to be over you. But the only way that happens is by repentance of faith and faith. And if you turn away from the repentance and you reject the faith, you no longer have the blood. And that warning is there for us for a reason. I'm not trying to put anybody under shame or condemnation or a guilt trip by any stretch of the imagination. We're all going to sin. I'm a saint that sometimes sins. But if I outright reject the faith, I'm in danger. Now here's the thing. Every one of you believes that that is true, I guarantee you. You may not believe it about you, but you believe it about that person who said that they're a Christian but is living like hell, and you're like, that person ain't going to be in heaven. There ain't no way. I could name names. I could name a name. And I will not. Because I will not talk about politics from the pulpit. But you all just got the name, and so you just let it pop in your head. Okay? He's either going to be with us in heaven, because he is, his testimony is that he has personally repented of his sin and has trusted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, or his actions have put him in danger of rejecting the faith. 
You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it where you can't ever be in danger, but he can. Either we all can be in that position or we all can't be in that position. So you either embrace the guy as a brother in the Lord or admit that we can be in danger of that. Pick. Can't have it both ways. But you know how I am. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to read these passages this week. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. All of these passages talk about believers departing from the faith in one form or another. Tuesday, John 15, 5 through 6. I love that one. If a man remains in me, if a man remains in me, not if he gets in me initially, if he stays in me, he will bear much fruit. But if he doesn't, he's in danger of being burned up in fire. That's a good one. That's Jesus, by the way. Matthew 7, 21 through 27 is Wednesday. Thursday, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Friday, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Saturday, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Now I want to point out a couple of things to you real quick. These passages from Revelation are specifically addressed to seven, these are two of the seven different ecclesias. That's churches. Ecclesia means the called out ones. Those who are His. And in those two passages, specifically the latter one, He said, you're lukewarm. And, I'm, and, and if we translated it literally, He's saying you're lukewarm. And I know this sounds gross. And you're in danger of being vomited out of my mouth. We translated to spit you out of my mouth because it's gross, the, the Greek word. It's actually puke you out. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me white robes. He's telling them, get right or you are in danger. To a church. Now, why would Jesus do that if it wasn't possible for us to, to be in danger? Hmm. So don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures. And keep in mind, it's not the person who stumbles and falls in sin. It's the apostate. Who's in danger? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you to have your way today. We ask you for the homework this week that you would speak to your people that read it. And Father, you would help people to come to a place of understanding. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.